come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 44 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here, recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be Journey Through the Aughts number 18, as I'm going to have featured reviews of The Beach House. That is a 2019 film, but getting its 2020 release. And then from 1960, I have Mill of the Stone Women. The double feature here didn't work out as much as I was kind of hoping that it would, but I'm still pretty excited for that. And then I also have mini reviews of Dark Water, Bubba Hotep, and I did get to see The Shining from 1980 in the movie theater as the Gateway Film Center has opened back up and they are still showing, you know, older films. But before I get into any of those mini reviews, I do have a monthly review. And for my monthly review, I watched 30 films in the month of August, which I did come up one short of my goal, but I had some you know, life events like going to a wedding out of town and things like that. So as much as it bums me out, I still am not going to be you know, upset about it too much. And then 28 of those were horror films, which those are Ginger Snaps, The Gift, Into the Dark, My Valentine, The Twilight Saga, New Moon, The House of Laughing Windows, The Twilight Saga, Eclipse, Host, Shadow of the Vampire, Jigoku, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1, Jaws 2, The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2, Jaws, Suspiria, In a Glass Cage, The Hunt, Peeping Tom, One Hour Photo, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, May, Peninsula, Jug Face, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, The Mothman Prophecies, Irreversible, Dark Water, and then the last one was The Beach House. And then I did have... Five of those are 2020 releases, which are Into the Dark, My Valentine, Host, The Hunt, Peninsula, The Beach House. I didn't get to see one of those in the theater with Peninsula. And then my highest rated for the month is I did watch two classics of Jaws and Suspiria. Both of those, you know, from the 70s, and I both gave those 10 out of 10. And then my lowest rated are, unfortunately, and I know Jamie's not listening to this, but if she did, are three of the Twilight films that I watched during this month, which are New Moon, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn Part 1. We're all fives, so it was a pretty good month for me, speaking that my lowest films that I watched were fives. And all of those can be heard on previous episodes from this month, except for The House of Laughing Windows is featured on the T-Puts Collective, what Duncan's doing over there for where to begin with giallo in a glass cage was for a movie club over on the podcast under the stairs like the movie club challenge they do over there and then jug face is on this feed but that actually will be appearing as a side quest episode that is already out there 
So that's all I had for the monthly review of everything that I kind of watched in the horror genre. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to that musical break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy.
and welcome back. For my first mini review of this week was actually the one that should have been on last week's, but with you know a time constraint and everything, it's going to go here, and that is Dark Water from 2002. Now this is the original one from Japan that is directed by Hideo Nakata. This comes from the novel by Koji Suzuki, and then it was the screenplay is written by Kenichi Suzuki and Yoshihiro Nakamura. And there's also two uncredited of Nakata as the you know the director has also helped with the screenplay, and so did a Takashigi Aichisi. I probably butchered all those names, so I do apologize. And then in this stars Hitomi Karuki, Ryo Kano, Mary Oguchi. This is a drama horror mystery thriller, as I said, from Japan. This is sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a mother and her six-year-old daughter move into a creepy apartment whose every surface is permeated by water. Now this film I actually saw after the remake. I obtained a copy and it was a while before I finally got around to seeing this. Is I didn't love the American remake. I didn't think it was bad but it just wasn't one that it didn't stick with me kind of like the Grudge of the Ring did. As this kind of falls into that same kind of movement from Japan. And I'm a fan of these ghost films from this era. But I wasn't the biggest fan of this one. Much like the remake after that first viewing. Now this is my second watch for the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs. You know for the 2000s. And then, just to give a little bit more than what the synopsis is giving us, is our main character is Yoshimi Matsubara, who is Kuroki. Now, she's talking to two mediators as she's going through her divorce with her husband of Kinyo Hamida, who is Fujimo Kohinata. Now, he did bring up some low blows here as he brought up to these mediators some moments of instability in her past. But she used to be an editor for a book company and she had a breakdown and she blamed it on some of the books that she was reading over and over again. And I'm assuming there's probably some violent things in there. So we really get to see he's not playing fair in this custody battle over their daughter. And it isn't a pretty sight just from things I've learned, you know, from my friends who have gone through divorce or anything like that. So it's kind of hard to blame him, but I also feel horrible for the mother here. And their child is Aikuko, who is Kano. Now they have one last apartment to look at before this day is out and she said that she was going to shore it up to with the mediators for this week as well and they go to this building that's kind of a little bit run down and the real estate agent is hota who is yu tokui and then there's also a property manager here of kei miya who is asio yatsu now as i said the building is pretty run down and when they go up to the room we get to see that this apartment has a water spot over the bedroom that would be you know the master bedroom and ota is nervous because he notices it but for whatever reason yoshimi doesn't and then she panics because her daughter seems to go missing they end up finding her up on the roof and then up there they also find this red bag and yoshimi doesn't want her daughter to have it because she's worried that somebody's going to come looking for it but they end up moving into this apartment and try to bring some normalcy but we see that there could be supernatural events happening around them as there is this missing girl for uh, by the name of mitsuko Kawa, who is Myri Oguchi. Now, we see that she's been missing for a couple of years here, and there's some eerie similarities between things that happened in Yoshimi's past, as well as things that are happening for Aikuko at the moment, and we also get to realize that not only are there supernatural elements at play here, but there could be something wrong with the water in this building, and as I said, it's kind of falling apart, so that also leads to some interesting situations that causes Yoshimi to pretty much have another breakdown and could jeopardize her chances of keeping her daughter. 
Now, as I said, I did see the American remake first and thought it was fine, but I wasn't the biggest fan, as I said, and I do have to say that, you know, after seeing this original version, both of them make a lot more sense to me. This isn't an overly scary movie. It is more about the atmosphere with some creepy parts, and I do have to say the aesthetic is a real dreary one. It is raining quite a bit, this movie, which could explain the leak in the apartment. There's also not a lot of color in the apartment that they end up moving into, so that red bag does really pop, and I think that was strategically done there. Now, this film is really much more about this unstable mother losing her mind as she's going through a divorce and she is struggling to try to keep her life together. There is this new aspect of, you know, being a single mother and we get to see that her husband has more money than she does. And so she's really trying to do whatever she can because if she's not careful, she's going to hurt her case in keeping Aikuko. To complicate things, she has taken an apartment that is her own. So we get to see, you know, that there's a little bit of her, you know, getting that normalcy back. But it's a much older building. And then she does hear people running around above her. And then she goes up to find that that place is completely empty as well as it's completely flooded at one time. And what I like here is that her lawyer at one point explains away everything rationally. And I thought that was kind of a cool thing there. But then, you know, the mother seeing Masuko... That can't necessarily be explained away rationally unless she's, you know, losing her mind and everything. I will admit, the first time I saw this movie, I wasn't the biggest fan of the ending. It does make sense, though, after I've seen it a couple times now. I really kind of feel bad for what happened to, you know, this little girl, Masuko, that is missing and seemingly just being left behind by her family. Yoshima does seem to have a similar upbringing, as I said, and doesn't want to do this to Aikuko. We have that going on here. I do think that the acting is really good here. Kuroki's performance is really good, and I feel horrible for her, you know, going through the divorce and trying to, you know, make a life for her and her daughter without a whole lot of kind of resources to go from there. And then to add out of that, she could be dealing with a possible haunting, which makes it even worse. Oguchi is solid in being, you know, creepy as that little girl. Kano is adorable as the daughter here. Kohinata is someone who's kind of a scumbag, but in these custody battles, I can't really fault him. The rest of the cast is good and round this out for what was needed. The last thing to kind of go over here would be the effects. There aren't really a whole lot of them, to be honest, and they do well in indicating things from the past by tinting and, you know, the color of the images that we're getting to see, where it kind of looks faded and um, almost like water damaged as well, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to play with there. I like the look of the building that they're staying in. It is dreary, which fits the mood of the movie. There are some really creepy images with Masuko as well. I would say that the cinematography is really good for what they're going for. But like I said, this isn't a great movie in my opinion. I find this movie to be above average and came in with a 7 out of 10 on this one. And then for my second review of this week is Bubba Hotep from 2002. This is directed by Don Coscarelli who also wrote the screenplay. And it comes from the short story from Joe R. Lansdale. This stars Bruce Campbell, Ossie Davis, and Bob Ivey. This is a comedy, fantasy, horror, mystery western from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Elvis Presley and a black JFK stay in a nursing home where nothing happens until a wayward Egyptian mummy comes and sucks out old people's souls through their a-holes and the two decide to fight back. Now, this is a film, to be honest, that when I first learned about it, I rolled my eyes. My intrigue grew, though, when I saw that it was written and directed by Don Coscarelli. He's able to do some interesting things with odd subject matter, so I gave it a chance. It came up, though, during my run through a horror encyclopedia that I was working through for that first time, and then I now gave it a second watch as part of the Summer Challenge series over in the 2000s on the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, just to kind of give a little bit of a, a little bit more than the synopsis gives this really sets a tone giving us the definition of hotep and then bubba 
So you kind of get an idea that this is going to be, you know, a comedy here. It then shift over some old footage of an archaeological dig in Egypt, and we see that a mummy has been found and is going to be taken to a museum. Now, one of the big things for this movie is that Bruce Campbell plays Elvis Presley, but everybody in this nursing home is calling him Sebastian Half, because supposedly the real Elvis decided to switch places with Sebastian Half because he got kind of tired of being in the limelight and decided to become an Elvis impersonator so he could live a more normal existence. But then during through an accident, the contract that they signed that the real Elvis could take his spot back whenever he wanted was destroyed, and so he's just been kind of living his life out in this way. Now, I think the biggest thing here is that Bruce Campbell's performance makes you believe he is the real Elvis and not this guy named Sebastian Half. And then on the other side, we also have that when JFK was assassinated, he actually survived the attempt, and then they dyed his skin black in order to put him into hiding, and that is the story that Ossie Davis is portraying. Now, the interesting thing there is that I really believe with how much he believes that he is JFK, I wasn't necessarily sure how this is going to play out in the movie, but it does really well just because of how good and strong their performances are. And on top of that... We have some interesting concepts that we're playing with here. Since Bubba Hotep, who is Bob Ivy in this, is a mummy that needs to live on souls, what better place would be a nursing home? The people there are, do are dying fairly regularly to other places so no one would question it. It does get a bit outrageous with some of the things, but that is the comedy that you have here. I do love the care that they put into having things like Tana Leaves, which comes from the Universal Mummy series. In that respect, it almost feels like a like a quasi sequel in an odd way and i also enjoyed the backstory of how the mummy ended up there now the setting as i've already kind of said here really works for me if someone sees bubba they're not necessarily going to believe because of you know many of them having dementia or just being kind of old now the movie does state that the stronger the soul the longer the creature will live but there isn't a lot of fight left in the people here so it needs to constantly feed but you kind of have an endless run of people coming through and going for sure and i really like that idea this is mostly a two-man show, though. I've already said how great the acting performances from Campbell and Davis are. I also really like that we have Ella Joyce here as the nurse. She's kind of fun in her role. It was good to see Reggie, Reggie Bannister from, you know, the Phantasm series as the administrator of the nursing home. We also have Daniel Roebuck, who plays one of the hearse drivers, who we get to see him pretty regularly because they are coming to pick up, you know, the people that have passed away. And then Ivy was solid as the monster to round out for what was needed. The last thing I want to go over would be the effects. For the most part, I think they're fine. The mummy itself doesn't look great, but I'll give it a pass as they went practical there. And I like to see, since it's eating souls, that when it walks past anything electronic, it will like flicker like the lights we get to see mostly. I do hate some of the comedic things they do with the hieroglyphics in this movie, though. There's one point where it pops up like there's subtitles, and then... And then it kind of shifts over to what English would be. I was not a fan of that. I feel like this is kind of Coscarelli wanting to play, you know, a little bit more with the comedic aspects. I think they could have done away with that. And it, because for me, it doesn't really add a whole lot. And it did kind of bother me. But I have come up on this film. I know a lot of people, this is beloved as one of the better horror comedies. It's just not really for me. I do like some of the backstory and what they're playing with there. But I had to come in with a 7 out of 10 this time on the movie. And for my final mini-review of this week is going to be The Shining from 1980. This was written and directed by Stanley Kubrick and came from the novel by Stephen King. And Kubrick also co-wrote the screenplay with Diane Johnson. This stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. This is a drama and horror film that is a co-production between the United Kingdom and the United States. It is currently sitting on an 8.4 on IMDb and a... 
4.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter where a sinister presence influences the father into violence while his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. Now, I remember the first time that I saw this film. My aunt, who is really into horror films, showed me this one night while I was staying with her during the summer. I wouldn't say that it terrified me, but there were definitely parts that made me feel quite uncomfortable. This film really did start my love of Stanley Kubrick as well. Now, the synopsis does a pretty good job, but we are following the, the Torrances where Jack, who is Jack Nicholson, is going to a large hotel where he is going to try to take over for the caretaker during the winter as it closes due to weather as they get a ton of snow and they really just need somebody to kind of stave off the elements so that the place isn't destroyed by the time they reopen. And then also going to be joining him is Wendy, who is Duvall, and their son Danny, who is Danny Lloyd. Now, Danny has a unique ability in that he is able to do something called Shining. And we get to actually an interesting little introduction to this through Halloran, who is Scatman Crothers. But now I have read the novel, and I do know Stephen King's not the biggest fan of this film. But I think that Kubrick does an excellent job in adapting this, but I get where King is coming from. The problem with Stephen King books are that he has so much information and they're so dense that it is hard to do in a normal film because I mean this is already running two and a half hours so if you go anything over that it's just not going to be able to work but I do love the concept as his family is struggling financially Wendy doesn't truly trust her husband after the incident he had with their son while he was drinking she knows at any moment he could slip back up now Jack is hanging on the edge of sanity but after this last viewing I actually think he plays it pretty well where he's just a weird guy and just quirky in general and I think that's kind of the issue that some people run into here but I mean, being in this closed hotel with no one around but his family is a horrible idea. He thinks that he'll be able to get a ton of writing done, which is his passion. But I believe actually having his son there, who is waking up the ghosts probably faster than normal, really doesn't help him here. And he descends into madness pretty quickly afterwards. I mean, it takes about a month or so, but I do believe the idea of cabin fever is definitely a real thing. And it could happen as we get to see it here. Now, the location of this film is amazing. I like that it's brought up to Allman, who is the guy who runs the place, portrayed by Barry Nelson, that it would have good skiing, but the problem is that it's so isolated. It would be too costly to keep the roads open, and they get an average of 20 feet of snow per year, which is just unreal to think about. I used to have my issues with the psychic ability of The Shining and not really using it so much. It was this time around, like I know that he reaches out to Halloran all the way in Miami to get him to come help, but it was this time around that I was really putting together that Danny knows things that his parents are saying back and forth when he's not in the room and he's using his ability to learn these things. And I mean, of course, he gets to see all these violent images and I love coupling this with Dr. Sleep to explain who the voice in the back of his mouth is, known as Tony. Film doesn't really have any shock value like with the scares, it is very much a psychological film and you fear for this family and it just gets worse. For me, the most terrifying thing are the twin girls. That's like what I think is the scariest and I think that Kubrick does an excellent job in selecting a soundtrack for the film. There's some scenes that just would be normal, but with the score that he has coupled with it, you just get this feeling of foreboding that really works. I think the acting is really good. As I've said, I thought Nicholson was kind of the weaker part of the movie, but I actually think he's great in how well he plays this. And I do think that you really have to also figure out here that the stresses of cabin fever and then his son's ability and waking up kind of the spirits there. And I also love this idea that the ghosts keep telling him that he's always been there. And then there's a lasting image at the very end of this movie. I think this is just pretty much saying that the house has its hold on him and anybody who has, has its hold on, you've always kind of been there. 
but I actually think the best performance in this movie is Duvall. I do know legendarily that Kubrick beat her down and would do, you know, way too many takes on scenes. I just think with some of the things that she has to go through and, you know, trying to deal with Jack while defending her son, I just think she is the best performance and she just feels like a broken character by the end. Lloyd did really well as a f- child actor in this film, and I really like Scatman Crothers as well. He's just a fun guy. And then the last thing here would be just some of the delving into the effects. The blood in the film looks really good, and I love the image of you know the elevator releasing that like sea of it coming out. The other best aspect, I think, in this movie is that we kind of get these montage sequences here and there where Danny is seeing these images. I love this because it's a technique that Kubrick used in A Clockwork Orange, another one of my favorite films, and I think it helps here for sure. But this is a classic. If you've never seen this, I'm kind of shocked as a horror fan. But this one is just one of the best ghost films out there. And, I mean, it just takes it farther than just being a haunted house and just the psychological effects and everything like that. It's just a masterclass in cinema making, like... Just being a a two-and-a-half-hour-long film and everything that we get here, you know, coupling the acting being great, the story, concept, all of it, that this is one of my favorite films of all time, and I came in here once again with a 10 out of 10. Now what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. When you see someone change in front of you, and you know there's no going back, Scares me to death. No one's been here in months. It's beautiful. I love you, you know. I love you too. Does anyone need a refill? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this out here before? It's in the trees. It's all over. Something in the air. I felt a little lightheaded before. I feel good. It's like I was knocked out. I, uh, I can't remember. Mr. Turner! Miss Turner, where's Mr. Turner? It is so nice out today. for my first featured review of this episode is going to be The Beach House, which is technically a 2019 film, but didn't get its official release outside of the festival circuit until this year of 2020. This is written and directed by Jeffrey A. Brown. It stars Liana Libertaro, Noah Legros, and Jake Weber, along with Marianne Nagel, Michael Broomfield, Matt Maisto, 
Stephen Corkin, Dan Zakarji, and Veronica Fellman. This is a drama horror mystery from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a romantic getaway for two troubled college sweethearts, turns into a struggle for survival when unexpected guests in the surrounding environment exhibit signs of a mysterious infection. Now this is a movie that I heard about it when it came to the streaming channel of Shudder. With the whole pandemic thing going on, it made it a bit more interesting here in 2020. You know, to keep up with my goal of watching a new release horror film each week, now, this did come out in a stretch where there was quite a few of them that all seemed to drop around the same exact time, so I'm now finally getting around to viewing this, and I've heard a few podcasts bring this movie up, but I still came in pretty blind for the most part. I will bring up something a little bit later into this review that I did hear about it, but outside of that, I just knew that it kind of took place at a beach house. And just to give a little bit more background information for some of the major people in this. Now, Jeffrey A. Brown is pretty new to the writing and directing game. He has written and directed two shorts of The Wooden Box back in 2009 and Sulfuric in 2013 before penning and helming The Beach House. He has, however, done some location managing for, like, The Dead Don't Die, which I did see that in the theater last year, I believe. And I've also seen his work on Master of None, the Netflix series. Liana Libertino is a child actress that is actually still working, which is impressive. Now, she hasn't ventured much into the horror genre. She was in a show for 26 episodes called Light as a Feather, as well as in the 2013 movie called Haunt. I've also seen her in Trust with Nick Cage and Nicole Kidman, another movie with called Erase, which I believe has Olga Karolinko, and she was also in Sons of Anarchy. Noah LaGrosse has been in just one other horror film, working with Larry Fensenden in Depraved. I believe that was also from 2019. And then there is Jake Weber, as he has been in 10 horror films aside from The Beach House. Most notably is Dawn of the Dead remake, but he was also in Chained, The Haunting of Molly Hartley, Wendigo, and The Cell. Jake also has an interesting role on the non-horror TV show of Homeland, which I really liked him in that with being one of those Alex Edwards kind of conspiracy theory type guys. And he's also in Meet Joe Black and U571, a couple other movies that I've also seen that he has been in. Now, what I like about this movie is that we kick it off with footage of the ocean and then we go under the water. We're seeing what looks like smoke because it's rising from the depths. I didn't know if it was smoke or if it was supposed to be like large deposits of like silt and like dirt being kind of jagged loose and then it rises into the surface but smoke makes a little bit more sense and there is no real text or explanation as i was saying though of what we're seeing but this will play into things later of course we then see the beach before going to a car as it arrives at a beach house inside of the vehicles are a couple of emily who is libertaro and randall who is lagrosse his father owns the place and from what randall states that since it is off-season, no one should be using it right now. The first thing they do is they go up to a room and have sex. Afterwards, we start to see that we get a better idea of their relationship. Emily gets up to go to the bathroom, and Randall asks her what she's doing. Now, it is kind of tense here, but it ends, you know, just with that and her leaving the room. She does her business, and as she's washing her hands, she notices the water is thicker than normal and has what almost looks like a slimy consistency to it. Now, that's not all she finds, though. There are a bunch of pills in the medicine cabinet, and I couldn't really tell from this point, but I'm assuming that looking at the dates of when the prescriptions were prescribed and, like, the expiration dates, you can tell that it's fairly new. And there's also kind of one of those dispensers where you break everything up by the day as well in the bathroom. Now, this causes her to go downstairs to see 
what then appears to be someone is, you know, staying there as there are dishes in the sink and whatnot. And it looks like, you know, people have been cooking and living there. That's when somebody comes in. Emily sneaks back up to the room and that's where she tells Randall everything that she's found and the two of them go back downstairs to investigate. The woman we saw earlier who seemed to also hear Emily because she's nervous and kind of hiding around the corner of a doorframe. Now her name is Jane and she's portrayed by Nagel, soon joined by her husband of Mitch who is Jake Weber. It appears that Randall's father told them that they could stay there. Now the movie doesn't actually relay this information to us yet but, but Jane is dying. They're staying here to get away and make her a little bit more comfortable and to see if she can, you know, kind of recover from what I've gathered here. Now, Randall hasn't been speaking to his father, so he had no idea that they were going to be here. Both couples, though, try to make the best of things and they sit down to get dinner together. It is here that we learn that Randall is lost with what he wants to do with his life and then dropped out of college. This is something that I can kind of commiserate with and know what he's going through because after I graduated from college, I definitely felt like this where you're kind of just lost. Now, he's kind of having this crisis here of what he should do, so at the moment, he has dropped out. Emily, on the other hand, wants to go to graduate school. She is studying chemistry and wants to study astrobiology. Now, this does get described here, which I kind of think is a cool thing for this movie and how everything kind of plays out. But Randall wants her to leave school to be with him, though. And this is kind of one of the first times I really have problems with him when this whole kind of talk goes down. Because... He wants her to give up what her dreams are so he can pursue his, and it's kind of a misogynistic way to think. Now, I have seen it the other way around because I definitely had an ex who hated that I would do these reviews and everything that I was writing just back then. And it does kind of disheartening you when you have a passion that you want to kind of do, even if it's just a hobby, and having somebody tell you that they don't want you to do it, especially somebody that you care about. Now, things take a turn when Randall offers everybody some edible marijuana. It is a bit more potent than the others were expecting and it makes them question some of the things that they're seeing because this is kind of a cool thing that we get is they go outside and it appears that the photoplankton that you can usually see in the water when you're a little bit in the deeper into the like ocean or you know bodies of water that actually have this type of organisms but this seems to be all over the trees and like the sand and everything that's outside so it makes it look very beautiful but this isn't normal and what is really going on here might be worse than any of them could ever dream. And this is kind of one of the cool things that I will give the movie is that Emily, being that she is, you know, into science like she is, she knows that something's not right about this, that even though it looks amazing, that there's something bad going on here. Now, that is where I'm going to leave my recap of the movie, though, as I feel that gets you up to speed with what this movie is going to be about without going into spoilers. And I'm not going to really have a spoiler section here. I will bring up a, an important name later on, and I will kind of talk about a couple other movies that are very similar to this that have come out either earlier this year or previously. But outside of that, you kind of get the gist of this movie from its synopsis and everything like that, so I don't necessarily feel like I need to kind of delve too much more into what I have to say you know, going forward from here. But what I will say, though, is that this felt like a lot like the beta me, but just not as good. Now, as again, I don't want to necessarily spoil things here. There is just something that is natural in the ocean and that how humans treat the environment could be the explanation for everything that we're getting here. I will admit this movie, though, is a bit heavy handed with presenting this information. And this one is not found footage like the Bay is either. Just kind of want you to know that as well. The reason I say this is a bit heavy handed is that with Emily and her background, this isn't her beach house, so having her be the main character for this feels like the movie is forcing just so she can be the one to reveal information to us since she has learned this in school. And there are a few times where she's going way too scientific for things that just doesn't feel natural. I'm not saying she wouldn't be that way in these moments. Heck, I'm a bit of a nerd and I tend to go on these rants when I know a little bit more information or trivia on things, so 
it's possible, but I just don't necessarily feel like it's natural in how she's saying things. Now, that's not the problem that I have here, though. What I do have an issue with is it doesn't just feel natural for me from here, as, I, as I've been saying. For another comparison of how you do it better would be like something that we saw earlier this year in the movie of Sea Fever. Now, don't get me wrong, though, as I don't want you to think that I hated this. That is not the case. Emily bringing up some of the stuff during the talk when we learn what she wants to study is interesting. Now, astrobiology, I didn't realize until watching this, is I kind of thought along the same way that Jane did, that this would be like trying to study life on other planets, but actually it's really studying, studying more things on our planet of living in extreme conditions. Like, say, at the bottom of the ocean is what she says in this movie. And that's something that's interesting. Now, this is fascinating to me because the bottom of the ocean terrifies me, as there are things down there we've never been able to study because we can't get down there, and it scares me what could be at the bottom. This film hints that global warming could be the cause of things, but I like here is that this movie isn't always heavy-handed. There's a subtle way that it does this with a CB radio and a normal AM news station on the radio that are kind of relaying a little bit of information here at the, kind of in the later third of the movie. I thought that's kind of a cool way to do things because they turn it on trying to see if they can, you know, find help or try to find these things, and they're getting, you know, bits of information, which I think is a cool way to do things. Now, it's not as good as, you know, actually showing us, but if you're going to have it be told, I'd rather do something like that. Now, what is interesting, though, is the timing of this movie coming out. This was made in 2019, so it was making its festival rounds, you know, just after that and, you know, before this year. Having an infection like we get in this movie is an interesting watch while living in this pandemic. Now, these are completely different type of things here, but there is a possibility that what we think could be fog could be spreading things, but that's not 100% stated, and I just realized that the smoke we saw coming out is probably that fog that we see as well. So, you know, I'm actually learning things as I'm going through everything here as well. This is much different from, you know, what we're getting in real life, but in the same vein, it is kind of similar, and I did enjoy that, but I know not everyone will because of, you know, not necessarily wanting their entertainment to reflect kind of scary things that we're experiencing in our outside world as well. Since this is a contained movie, which I'm also a fan of, we really only have four characters here. We really get a night, and then into the next day, and into that second night for everything that goes down. Libertaro's our star, and I think that she's fine in that role. My only issue would end up being that I think that how things were written to relay information is the problem, not necessarily her. I thought her performance was good. Lagrasse is a jerk, but I think he plays it just fine for the movie and that's what they needed and i did see some people online stating in like a review that this is kind of tackling misogyny i can see it but i mean i also just kind of feel like it's a little bit heavy-handed to try to say that about this movie he is the embodiment of what i think actually boomers think of millennials because you know he just kind of wants to smoke weed or i mean i guess in his case eat weed and just kind of you know go through life doing whatever he can and kind of living off his father when but technically though he is acting more like a gen z from what i've experienced in the people that i know and people around me i do like weber and i think his role here is good in support nagel is solid as well she does so well at playing somebody who looks like to be in a lot of pain and it's kind of sad at times for sure what i think i should shift over to next would be the effects as i think they do some really good things here without using a whole lot of them actually I love the idea that the first night that everybody is high, so they're questioning some of the things that we're seeing, and that's kind of a cool way to kind of progress the story as well. The movie then does some things with the fog that I can get behind, and I think they do well there, and they probably are filming some of that stuff on sets, and by using fog, you can kind of hide some of the background, so that's, I'll give them credit for that. The lighting here really helps in some of these situations, though, which is why I like the fog, because you'll have some different color lights, which I can appreciate, you know, how it kind of makes some contrast there. 
There are some really creepy creature effects in this movie as well. What they do with people's eyes may be uncomfortable when they're infected. And then near the end of the thing, we get to actually see what happens when people have been infected for a prolonged amount of time. And that was pretty creepy as well. All that looked to be practical, and I'm a fan there. And then before I close out this review here, I did have some trivia that I wanted to let you in on as well. Is that director Jeffrey Brown said that the script was influenced by five films which are Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and technically there's three of them here. There, there is the original from 1956, the remake in 78 and 93, Shivers from 1975, Like Crazy from 2011, Alien from 1979, and The Quatermass Experiment from 1955, Shudder, AMC's network premium streaming service for horror, thriller, and the supernatural, announced in October 2019 that they had acquired the rights in all territories of this film, Brown also went on to say that he wrote the script around a personal experience where a trip to Cape Cod resulted in ending a relationship with a woman he was dating. He then weaved his deep affection for 50 sci-fi into, you know, everything that happened there. This film was shot at producer Andrew Corkin's father's North Truro residence in Cape Cod during the offseason. Had its U.S. debut at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival in October 2019. Jake Weber's second film on infectious disease, with the first one being the Dawn of the Dead remake. This movie is Jeffrey Brown's directorial feature-length film debut. And the name that I've been referencing that I was going to bring up is that of H.P. Lovecraft. I know I've seen a few people say that this kind of would fall into Lovecraftian-type literature or stuff like that or works just because of the fact that this is coming from the bottom of the ocean. I guess you could kind of equate it that, especially because of the changes that it's having coming over them, especially with something like Dagon, at least in the, or the Shadow Over Innsmouth, I guess is probably the novel that is much closer to it. I didn't really think about it until, you know, recording all this, but that is kind of an interesting little thing there. So that's all I really wanted to delve into there, just to close this review out then. I feel like this movie does some interesting things. I like the idea this movie sets up with the isolation being at this beach house, you know, on the off season. It helps to build that contained feel. We have a small cast that really do well, in my opinion. The subject matter might be a bit heavy for some people, especially during the times that we're living in currently, but it does have some good social commentary there. The effects, lighting, and cinematography were all good as well. If I do have any issues, the movie just is doing some things that I've seen done better, even by movies, you know, released just here in the same year. It is a bit heavy-handed there, which does hurt it. Not a bad movie by any stretch, but just falls short of being, you know, good for me, though. So I came in with an above-average score here out of a 7 out of 10. What I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Filmed on a spectacular scale in breathtaking Technicolor. Here is the bone-chilling motion picture the critics have called a classic shocker, the mill of the stone mill. Why do beautiful young women suddenly turn to stone? Against this eerie background, a twisted mind has plotted a series of sadistic events you wouldn't believe possible until you see them. It's a corpse. Handsome Pierre Brice and Europe's fabulous new star, the extravagantly beautiful Sheila Gabel. 
They say the trouble began with a woman, and you'll see why in the terrifying mill of the stone women. You've never seen anything like the mill of the stone women, for until now, no one has dared tell such a shocking story on the motion picture screen. Mill of the Stone Women is the entertainment event of a lifetime. Don't miss the mill of the stone women. Now, for my second featured review on this episode from 1960 is Mill of the Stone Women, and this goes by the original title Il Muluno della Donna di Pietra. This is directed by Giorgio Ferroni, and there's a lot of uncredited things going on here. Is that Remigio del Grosso did the scenario for the French version and it is uncredited. Giorgio Ferroni, Ugo Libertaro, and Giorgio Stevgani are all uncredited for doing the screenplay as well. Now, uh, Louis Savant did the dialogue for the French version, and this is all based off of the short story by Peter Van Weigen. This stars Pierre Bryce, Celia Gable, Wolfgang Priest, Denae Carell, Herbert A.E. Bonmi. Liana Orfi, Marco Guglielmi, Olga Solbelli, and Alberto Archetti. This is a horror sci-fi film from a co-production in Italy and France. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis here being that in the 19th century Holland, a professor of fine arts and an unlicensed surgeon run a secret lab. They also use their victims as macabre art. Now, I did kind of alter that a little bit because I do feel like it went a little bit spoiler heavy and kind of gave away too much. But this is another movie that I'd never heard of until I was going through Letterboxd to find movies from 1960. Since I needed this here for the Journey Through the Aught segment, I was trying to find one that I could pair with the 2020 release that I watched and... Now, this isn't great there if I'm trying to pair them up, but it does have some things that I can correlate, and I really just went off the title, though, to watch it because it did sound interesting, and I could watch this on YouTube in a dubbed version, and I do plan on trying to see if I can pick up a copy of it now that I have seen this. Now, just get a little bit more on some of the major players here. The director of Ferroni has directed 76 films, two of which are horror, this movie and Night of the Devils from 1972, Looks like he stuck mostly to dramas, and which kind of makes a bit of sense for this film as I kind of get into it. And then we have a bunch of, like I said earlier, uncredited writers on this movie. Now, Del Grosso did another one called A White Dress for Marile. Now, he did work quite a bit with Ferroni, and you know, obviously Ferroni did some uncredited work on the screenplay, the only time he did anything like that. Libertori wrote the screenplay to another movie called The Witch from 1966, as well as Damned in Venice, and he also directed the latter. And Del Grosso and Libertori did co-write the screenplay to the movie of 300 Spartans as well. Now, this is a more realistic take and a more historically accurate take on the movie 300 and everything that happened with, you know, the, with the Spartans. 
Giorgio Stengani did some additional dialogue for an Italian version of Cannibal Holocaust, which he also has working on this. And he also did the screenplay slash story for The Mask of Satan from 1990. And he wrote Death on the Four Poster from 1964, which this does sound like a giallo, but I'm not 100% positive there. Now, the dialogue was also done by Louis Savant, which probably was part of the co-production with France here. And then... Bryce was a, in another horror film, Night of the Damned, and it looks like he did a lot of spaghetti westerns as a character named Winnetow, but I'm not really sure because I'm not really that familiar with too many of the spaghetti western films. The only horror film that Gable did was this, but she did appear to do a lot of like Italian films sticking with dramas and comedies for the most part. And then the last one is Priest, has a ton of acting credits, eight of them in the genre, and he started out with, you know, Doctor Without Scruples, which is kind of a fitting that he is the role that he has here as a doctor. And he also was Dr. Mabuse in three films from the 60s, along with Night of the Vampires, The Mad Executioners, and Fantisma Amor. Now, I know a little bit about the Dr. Mabuse films just because I've watched, I think it's the Diabolical Dr. Z or the Dr. Orlock or something like that. And I know those are kind of the same kind of take on that. So it's kind of cool to see that he did you know, some of those films as I will get to watching them in the somewhat near future. Now to get into this movie, I will admit that as I said earlier that I cleaned up the synopsis a bit because it was a bit spoiler heavy. The name of the movie does give a bit of a way though if you kind of can gather what we're getting at. Now we start this off with Hans von Arnhem who is Bryce, as he's coming to a small village outside of Amsterdam, Holland. He was sent there by his boss to work with a Professor Gregorius Wall, who is Bunmi, and Professor Wall lives and works inside of a windmill where he has converted it to an exhibit to show statues of famous deaths throughout the ages. As I was saying, it is rigged in a way where you can turn these cogs and turn on this machine here inside the windmill, and it'll kind of cycle through them so the audience can see everything. Hans thinks that he's there to introduce himself, and he has end up put to work immediately, and he also has five days to complete what he has to do, and also the ferry will leave every day at 7 p.m., and he isn't to stay in the mill. Now, Professor Vall is also a teacher at a nearby college. In this class is Lissetti Kornheim, who is Corel, and then we have Rolf, who is Guglimi. It appears that Lysetlot grew up with Hans, and she's excited that he's coming to town, now, Rolf also knows him, and he has his sights set on the model of their drawing class of Anna Lori, who is Orphe. Something I left out was the first day that Hans is there, he catches a glimpse of Professor Vall's daughter, Elfie, who is Gable. Now, she is quite attractive, and she seems to have a medical condition, which is why Dr. Lauren Bolman is staying there, who is Price. He, we see that he loves her, but it is not reciprocated, as Elfie has fallen for Hans, now, she asks him to come back to the mill after everyone has gone to sleep so she can profess her love to him, but it is during this that he realizes that he loves Lisetlot after all of these years. Now, this angers Elfie when she sees it, and then we see that this medical condition that she has and that her father has warned Hans about that she cannot be upset. So when, when this happens, it appears that she dies in front of Hans. Now, he wanders the night trying to figure out what to do, and then when he returns to confess Dr. Bloman gives him a sedative and he ends up having these wild hallucinations. The question then becomes though, did Elfie really die or is there something more sinister going on here in this windmill? Now like I said in the opening of this, I never heard of this movie but I was quite intrigued by the title and seeing that this was based off of a short story. There is this interesting little idea that they're playing with here that we see more of as the years go on. 
the title does give a bit giallo-esque feel to it even though this film predates that genre from my understanding but it is a co-production from italy so i think that's mostly the part of it there is that they just have some really great titles for their movies now this could be considered a little bit of a spoiler but the sculptures in the windmill are actually people and i won't give away the reason that they're being killed but the movie doesn't do really well in hiding you know most of what's going on with this plot I put together everything fairly early on, and I will say that the statues are pretty eerie though. As I was saying, I've seen a similar plot device in the remake of House of Wax, and I believe even the original House of Wax, or even Taurus Trap, but I feel the last one here probably borrowed some of these elements for sure, and then of course, you know, the 2005 remake of House of Wax is more of a Taurus Trap remake. There's also an interesting angle entangling many of the characters as well. Hans is interested in Elfie, but I think that's just the mystery of the character because nobody really knows a whole lot about her and she is attractive. Elfie loves him, but that feels like her being mostly isolated from everyone. Now she does have a rare condition that killed her mother, so it is hard to fault her father from wanting to protect her. Dr. Bolum is there to monitor her and keep her alive while trying to find a cure. Now he's also fallen in love with her because like I said, she is beautiful. LaSalle Lot has known Han since they were children, and the two of them realize that they're in love, which creates this triangle with Elfie. The two women are jealous of each other as well. Then that brings me here to Professor Wall. I've said I understand why he's doing what he has for Elfie, but he's a bit of a maniac with how far he'll go with some of the things to protect her and keep her alive. Now, since I've broken the characters down, I feel like I should shift over to talking about the acting. Bryce, I feel, feel, is pretty solid as the lead here. He's young and he's trying to make his name for himself, but there's this interesting angle of him descending into madness over what he's done. Now, we get to see that he is drugged, though, so it adds a bit to it. And then Gable is quite attractive. I like to think that she knows it, but she's also sheltered, so I feel like that's why she's so clingy. Price and Bone Me are interesting as they're almost mirror characters of each other. They both want to help and save Elfie, but for different reasons. And they will go to great lengths as well. Corell is also quite attractive, and she helps around this movie out with Orphe, Guglielmi, and the rest of the cast. Now, the next thing I should kind of go to next would be the effects. For the most part, we don't get a whole lot of them, but that's mostly due to those coming out in 1960. As I did say, though, I really love how creepy they make the statues in the windmill. From the first time that you see them, I knew that there was something off, and it adds an eerie feel for sure. I also liked that they did with the cinematography when Hans is drugged. We don't really know what we're seeing, if it's being real or what is not. They play with things, you know, being translucent and messing around with images to blur and the colors that probably aren't actually there. Then the ending sequence does some really cool things with the sculptures as well. And I also like that the sculptures are being made into these famous deaths because it's just kind of a creepy thing that if you're not into the macabre to begin with. So now with that said... I don't really have any trivia, and I'm not going to do a spoiler section because I don't feel like the movie really has enough to delve into, but this has an interesting premise, and the ideas that we feel like we've gotten borrowed by movies you know, down the line, so I do have to give credit that some of these filmmakers probably saw this and decided to incorporate things, and there just seems to be a bit that is just missing from it, though. Now, it could be the version that I was watching. As I did say, I did watch it on YouTube. The acting was pretty solid, and the complexity of the characters does add a lot. I thought the effects were good. The soundtrack has a creepy undercurrent to what we're getting. And what I watched was also a dub, but I am planning to look into seeing you know, the original way this film was intended with subtitles. I don't feel like this is great by any stretch, but it does explore some interesting aspects as I've been saying. And I would rate this as an above average movie overall, coming in with a 7.5 out of 10. And what I'm gonna go ahead and do now is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. 
I want to welcome you back one last time. And just to close this show out, 
if you would like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you would like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's the Reviews of the Dead, which is at horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can add me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then if you also want to add the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile. And then if you'd also like to download the FlickChat app on Android or iOS, you can do so. And my join code on there is also Journey with a Cinephile. And I could also ask one last thing, if you could go ahead and subscribe so you never miss a new episode, and also if you could rate or review on whatever podcatching app you are listening to this on, just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, just so I can make this the best possible show out there, as well as to make sure that I'm getting more listeners as well. And now what I think I'm going to do is since the next episode is going to be number 45, I think what I'm going to finally do is do my top 25 and bottom 10 horror films that begin with the letter A. Now this is some research that I started like five or six years ago, probably even more than that, where I just started to go down the alphabetical list from the horror movie encyclopedia that I was working through and still am, as well as the Fangoria Top 300 Horror Films of All Time. So what I think I'm going to start doing is kind of delve into those when I have time, and since I haven't completed any other sort of things like that, I will do the A's, and that will be for episode number 45 as we are gearing up for October, where I will have you know a lot more content and a lot more movies being watched as I do a couple of horror movie challenges during that as well. But that's all I really think I needed to delve into here. So I will say, you know, as our closing words here is that whatever you do today, I hope you have fun doing it and you're being safe. And this is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. signing off.